HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network on tour. I'm Kat Johnson, and today we are once again broadcasting from On the Rise 3, the International Symposium on Bread at Johnson & Wales University in Charlotte, North Carolina. Today's coverage is brought to you by Charlotte Scott a lot and supported in part by the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Today we have a special guest joining us from South Pittsburgh, Tennessee. Uh, welcome to Mark Kelly, the PR and Advertising Manager of Lodge Cast Iron. Welcome, Thank Mark. You. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming by. Um, so let's start with you have a Lodge Cast Iron pan on the table next to you. Yes, I do. Tell us about it. Is this one of the newer ones? This is the new pan that we came out with in the spring. Um, we have a 10-inch skillet. This is the 12-inch skillet. Um, Wirecutter.com rated the skillet as the best one on the American market. So we're pretty excited about that. And it's it's kind of, we had a 10-inch skillet that we called the chef skillet for many years, and we've upgraded that as well. The, the primary thing is the sides are sloped, the handle's more ergonomic, and it's a little shallower, not much, but it's, it's very friendly. And, of course, these assist handles really changed the dynamics for us when we added those in the late 70s. Can you talk more about the assist handle, like what it looks like? Well, it's, it's, it, it looks like a little pointed rectangle. Uh, I forget my geometry. But it helps you put your fingers underneath it and lift it. So if, if you're not accustomed to lifting five, 10 pounds, it really helps out. And with food in it, obviously it's a little heavier than that. But, um, any skillet over any of our skillets that are over eight inches, um, it has an assist handle on it or excuse me, over nine inches. Excuse me. Um, what's kind of like the difference between why you would want an eight versus a 10 inch skillet, just more food cooking capacity. And, and, um, say with this, you could, you could do two small steaks. You could do four hamburgers, um, chicken breasts that sort of thing and uh, some people actually make cornbread in a pan that size in a skillet that size or pies any number or layers of cakes it's a as we all know cast iron is very very versatile and um talk about a little bit about how lodge cast iron comes pre-seasoned and why that's important to maybe someone who hasn't cooked a lot with cast iron before well it's that that's a very compelling story we started the foundry seasoning in 2002 and um, we, we gained a lot of national recognition at the time. We were named a, in 2002, a good, good housekeeping provided us a, a good buy award. And uh, that moved us very quickly from being a regional distri- cast iron distributor to a national. Uh, and, and in the year since, uh, we're, we're now an international business. We're sold in 80 countries around the world. And um, 
when you're a town of 3,200 people <laughs> and you see your cookware in stores and you know Asia and Europe and Iceland and South and Central America and South Africa, um, it kind of gets you a little kick in your giddy up. It's, it's wonderful. So let's talk about that. Um, American made since 1896. So yes. it's been around for a really long time. Obviously, more and more people have been seeing the Lodge brand out there now that you're worldwide. But give us a little bit of the backstory of Lodge. I have to say, Kat, it's um, it's a true American story. Uh, Joseph Lodge's family came over from England. Um, he was looking for an opportunity. And um, at the time, uh, this was in the 1870s, there was a company from um, England, the, the old English company. And uh, they had several foundries there, and Joseph worked at a couple of those, and he was the supervisor. And um, he was still running a foundry, and when he started um, the original foundry, which was the Blacklock Foundry, uh, Joseph's family, as I said, is from England, so they're member- they were members of the Church of England. The Episcopal Church is the um, cousin of that, and Blacklock was named after Joseph Blacklock. Jo- uh, Joseph Lodge really liked that, that, pr- that Episcopal priest. And in 1910, the original foundry burned, and we uh, they moved the foundry about a mile south and reincorporated as Lodge Manufacturing Company, and we've been on that site ever since. Um, the the thing that is so compelling, we're a family-owned company, and the family's always reinvested in the foundry and the equipment, which is not like a lot of companies. <laughs> and uh, but we we've had. Um, so many instances through the years where we introduced auto pouring in the in the 70s and that helped us compete more on the on the world market um we in 1992 we switched from coke-fired copolis to melt the iron to induction furnaces which uh which not only made it more efficient but we became a a, a producer of a less amount of hazardous uh, air quality and now we're a zero hazardous waste stream foundry so when people think of iron and steel foundries they think of smoke billowing in the air and that doesn't happen um in the um, mid 90s things progressed well but uh we really weren't moving as it's most companies um were offshoring and uh, our board of directors really said this is what we're going to do we were fortunate to have Walmart in the mix of our sales. And um, then you know, they, when they started working on the foundry seasoning, it was one of those things where we, they knew that they needed to do it for a long time. And when they finally did it, the, t- the introductory tagline was, we should have thought of this 100 years ago. <laughs> but, but it took a lot of, you know, excuse me, I'm, I'm from the South, so home seasoning wasn't that difficult. Uh, and, and it's a process, it, particularly at home. You bake... Um, oil on it at very at 350 degrees and then you start cooking with it and a lot of people are asking for instance instant gratification when they buy a piece of cookware but with the with the at that time we called the seasoning lodge logic and logic was what we called the oil it's a soybean oil and um in excuse me on july 1st 2007 we switched everything to season at one point we had half of our items unseasoned another half season and and then we had the unseasoned was down to 25 items and a, as a rust preventative we had to dip it in wax mm-hmm. and um we weren't <laughs> we weren't doing enough of that so we we stopped doing the wax the the what we call original finish and we put it in another seasoning line so that that's uh and and for the 
20, late 20th and early 21st century uh, consumer, having that ability to, to, to buy something and take it home and start cooking with it right away uh, really, really changed the game. Um, it's a cliche, but a game changer, but it really changed the game. And it, um, it came about when Food Network and food magazines, particularly Food Network and, and PBS cooking shows, were at their, at their dominant place, still are, and they are using cast iron cookware. They don't mention Lodge or other manufacturers. But when we started seasoning, um, cast iron cookware was 4% of the domestic cookware marketplace, and that includes enamel-coated cast iron. And now we're, uh, cast iron category is 15% of the um, cookware market. So that's a big sea change in, in just a matter of 17 years. And what are you hearing from people who maybe get a lodge as their first ever cast iron piece and they're starting to cook with it? There are always a lot of questions. Um, a lot of people hear different stories about, you know, all the things that can go wrong with cast iron. And obviously we're telling them to relax. It's okay. And, um, and we have cooking videos. We have use and care videos on our website. And our, our customer care department does a really good job of walking people through. The one thing that a lot of people don't realize, um, even with the information we pro provide and other cast iron cookware manufacturers, is you don't have to, unless you're deep frying or searing, you don't have to take it up as high. So medium me, medium heat, a little lower, that's perfectly fine. So. It's, you know, a lot of people ask us if we're sustainable. Yes, but we also, when you cook with Lodge, you're also saving energy. Wow. Um, and um, I mentioned induction furnaces for our melting our, our metal. The only two metals that can be used on induction burners are cast iron and stainless steel. So there have been a lot of things that come in, have come into our play. And I'll, I'm a joker a lot of times. I always say, how did those middle-aged metallurgists know how, know that it was would be induction ready? And, um, some people get the joke and other people don't. But it, but if, once people start using it, they, they really have a fascination with it, and they, they, they really connect with how versatile it is. I mean, there are not a lot of skillets and Dutch ovens that you can use on the stovetop and in the oven, on the grill, and take it out camping, and you may not want to bring it in the house to cook with, but you can. And you can do all the, you know, just you can use virtually every cooking technique with exception of very delicate sauces and how many home cooks do that but uh, one technique that people are just shocked by is the broiler it's it i mean cast iron lives for heat and you put it under the broiler and anything you put in there is just going to be magnificent um and you briefly mentioned cornbread but let's get a little bit more into that there is a cornbread festival that takes place every year in South Pittsburgh. It's the National Cornbread Festival and Lodge uh, hosts the Lodge National Cornbread Cook-Off. Cat um, is, it's not your granny's cornbread. It's, <laughs> it's, it's different. Uh, it, contestants um, need to use a cup of Martha White cornmeal, a Lodge seasoned product, and everything else is left to their creativity. So through the years, we've had some really out of the box recipes. Just my favorite, I'm from the Georgia coast. My favorite one, it was a third place uh, finisher in 2008. It's crab cake cornbread. And the cornmeal was a medium that held the crab meat together. I grew up, had puree shrimp, and that was what held the crab meat together. But uh, we've had everything from Tex-Mex, Italian, um, Cajun. Uh, one, it did not look good, but there was a lady that won a few years ago. She It was a pot of mixed greens with uh, pureed um, andouille sausage and a big dollop of uh, whipped cream on the top and you literally got a hoe a hoe cake and scooped it up and ate it and now it was messy but darn was it good 
and it's uh, it's become a lot of people's favorite. And um, how can people learn more about the Cornbread Festival if they want to experience Lodge Cast Iron Culture in person? Well, two things. You can go on the website for the National Cornbread Festival, festival nationalcornbread.com, and uh, there are a lot of beautiful pictures of the, of the community. And, uh, and then the Lodge uh, Cast Iron website, we have videos from the cook-off. We, uh, we Facebook live the uh, cook-off this year. We had over 40,000 people watching, including some people from Australia. Um, but uh, that's a lot of people complain about technology, but to be able to introduce your community and your cook-off um, to people all over the world is, is something that nobody's ever been able to do without unless they spend a lot of money mm -hmm. but um the thing that really keeps it all together this is a tiny town of 3200 people that has over a thousand volunteers and um everybody who volunteers they receive something for their work so, um the gates uh, admission gates their school teachers and parents they take the tickets and the um, local elementary school gets those what proceeds from that and that helps pay for things that the school can offer pencils erasers and things of that nature the fo local football team picks up garbage and they get money to go to football camp uh, there's an area called cornbread alley it's a tasting area with seven different recipes and people pay an admission fee and then when they leave they, there's a little jar for each group and they, they vote by which one they liked and, and those and those people get that money and it's been Real instant. There was one church that lost its roof in a storm. They were able to put a new roof on it. Um, just any number of organizations, and the the festival committee has a reinvestment grant, which is doled out every year, and that's helped to re remove, uh, excuse me, restore an old church that's now a community center. It's restored a uh, old movie theater. Helped to restore an old movie theater. There was actually a silent film star, Joe Bonner Ralston, who was an Oscar winner. So when the, <laughs> the Princess Theater was completed, we had a Joe Bonner Ralston Film Festival. But um, to see that many people involved in the community, and we we have a line uh, you know we don't say cornbread festival we'll just say come cornbread time but also people catch cornbread fever and a lot of people from the community have moved to other cities and they'll bring friends to visit and they get cornbread fever so they volunteer but um we have a carnival that's a lot of fun for the children we have face painting uh, we have all kinds of children's things we have a lot of music and uh, we've had some great acts late in the afternoon on saturday and um the national cook-off is held on Saturday, and then there's a 4-H cook-off for nine-year-olds on Sunday, and that, that's probably the cutest cook-off I've ever seen. <laughs> you have these little nine-year-old kids toting their skillets up there, and you can tell it's maybe the first or second time they've done this recipe solo. But, um, it, you know, it's I've always revered 4-H and FFA, but seeing that's pretty remarkable. But um, with the national cornbread uh, cook-off, we t start taking submissions um, late in december of every year we we close off the uh, submissions um in march and we have a team that winnows down the submissions and uh picks the top 20 and then they prepare those and then they they t pick the top 10 to compete and they have two alternates in case somebody can't come um it's a it's a very generous award the the winner wins five thousand dollars a brown five-star uh gas range um Second place is $2,500, and third place is $1,000. Is, uh, $1, um, and everybody gets a stipend for a hotel, that sort of thing. And we literally, we had people from all over the country. The, the winner this year was from um, Pasadena, California. She came in second last year, and she came back, and she, she turned it around. And um, we, ha we have a caveat. If you win the cook-off, you can't, you can't 
sign on for the next five years, which is only fair to competitors. But um, we had the highest number of submissions this year. We had like 180 submissions from around the country. And what was really weird, we had three uh, uh, contestants from Illinois. Uh, but, uh, you know, we've had people – last year's winner was from Baltimore, and she came back and was a judge this year. Um, the first it, – it, you can tell with these cook-offs how uh, the presentation pays off. And the first year it really came to fold, there was a lady from uh, Flagstaff, Arizona. She had a Tex-Mex um, recipe, but she had a, she had a, uh, a margarita – she had the chips and a little sombrero and salsa. <laughs> there was the recipe. And uh, so the, the presentations have gotten quite elaborate, but uh, the recipes are, are pretty darn good. You have to have the cornbread, but you also have to have the swag with the cornbread. You have to have the swag. <laughs> and and uh, it's um, we've changed the format for the for the National Cook-Off. And re- last year we started, we switched. It used to be a, a heat of five people and a break for an hour, then a heat of uh, another five people. Um, in 2018 we switched it to an iron chef start with every 15 minutes Mm -hmm. with the clocks and that really has um enhanced the interaction with the audience uh we have two mcs we have one mc uh working the crowd just asking questions and then and then we have a a visiting chef that comes and is able to talk culinary um bits and pieces and it really added a lot of uh entertainment value and then we had a head-to-head cook-off between two restaurants in Chattanooga with the with the executive chef and the sous chef and uh, our art department did just an amazing job they made a poster that looked like it was like a wrestling match or something oh cool who will win yeah and they'd already competed in several uh, cook-offs in the past so there was a lot of trash talking on the stage and which made it a lot of fun and then um we had Carl Worley as a judge this year and he did a uh, from uh, Biscuit Love in Nashville Tennessee and he did a a cooking demonstration if you're ever in nashville and you again it's like the cornbread of the cook-off these ain't your granny's uh, biscuits these are <laughs> these are on another level altogether and he has he's, he started out with a food truck yeah and now he's got three brick and mortars in uh, nashville and we we provide a lot of cookware for him when he started but uh i just uh, I, you know we we were talking last night at dinner about all the things in the culinary community and I, that's one of the things I just that that's, that's my jam is seeing people work hard and make something good and and then they you know a lot of them they really don't change who they are they they just they they're successful with their business and they care for their employees and that's what makes my job a lot of fun working with people like that. And so speaking of Carl and providing him cookware for his restaurant, um, can you talk a little bit more about how Lodge works with chefs around the South and around the country to um, have these partnerships and help support them? Well, if a variety of ways uh, we'll provide uh, cookware for recipe t- testing and um, uh, also cookbooks. We, uh, we sell it at, at a, a, essentially at uh, just half off with plus shipping we have a we have a whole division in our sales department that calls on uh, restaurants and institutions specifically but through our relationship with southern foodways alliance and international association of culinary professionals we've but sometimes i cheat on that but anyway it's so we we've spread the word in a lot of areas and that we weren't in the past and we we have these mini servers that we created um came out in 2008 we've added pieces to it but um, they're they're little serving pieces different shapes and then in 2014 we bought the rights to a process where they're highly rust resistant Mm. so you can put them in the dish if it's food stuck on you can put them in the dishwasher still have to maintain the seasoning but uh it's really changed the game for us and it's it's a very simple process well it's 
difficult in the manufacturing, but essentially the process removes the top layer of oxygen. And when water hits iron, it oxidizes and we put nitrogen in there mm. and that stops the oxidation. So it's, um, it was funny, our, our uh, vice president of uh, manufacturing, we had a, a Dutch oven, he left it outside for three years while we were still thinking about it, never rusted. Now the seasoning was off, but it didn't rust. So we knew it, we knew it would be a good thing. It's, it's much like uh, blue steel, mm. that sort of thing where it doesn't rust. But um, we had some um, restaurant oriented, we were the ones that developed the fajita griddle mm. way back in the day. We have some other items and that business was doing well. But once we started these mini servers, it just took off. It's and, and it's not just in the states; it's all over the world. They really connect with it, um, and we're in. It's it's an untold story. Sometimes I wish I would go back and could be go back and be a journalist. Other countries truly revere American manufacturing, and uh, particularly in Asia, they they like they like American manufacturing. They they like family businesses, and they love the South. Um, when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, maybe the South, what, you know, people didn't really think about the South in a nice way, but now it's the ultimate cool. So we have distributors coming in from China and Taiwan and Japan and South Korea. And because of those relationships, uh, particularly South Korea and Japan, we've been able to come out with some new items for them. And we introduce it to the American market and everybody, everybody digs on it. So it's cool. That's awesome. I love that it's a small family business in a really small town, but with this like massive global reach it, it's um like i was saying earlier i get chill bumps when i think about it um it, years ago we we got a call the week before christmas in a museum in paris where they wanted some of these mini server pieces they they they, they had an exhibit uh on high hot cuisine art and mm. we were like okay we just did it here but they liked it and, we, and it, it is very elegant but um you, when you get so ingrained in the process you may not think it's all that, but to to be asked to be invited to have your products in a, a, a really wonderful museum. Uh, forgive me, I've forgotten the name, but that was quite a that was quite a coup for us. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, so, where can people go to learn more about Lodge and order their own pieces for home? Well, we we have a lot of dealers here in in the Charlotte area and all around the country. Um, we're sold in Sir Latab and Williams Sonoma, Walmart, Target. Uh, Amazon and we have our own website www.lodgemfg.com that's where you can learn more about us and there are a lot of videos on there and all of our products are on there both seasoned iron enamel coated we have a really excellent line of carbon steel skillets and griddles that people like but more importantly you really get a glimpse of who and what we are um, you see a lot of the workers and uh, there's some interviews with them there's there's a foundry tour um, and if you ever have a chance to get down our way, I would love to take you on a foundry tour. It's, it, is, it is any photographer that comes in, whether it's still or film, I have to drag them out of there. Because they, <laughs> particularly when they're pouring the metal into the, um, the ladles that go and pour into the sand, pour the auto-pour mechanism. But it's, uh, it's smoke and steel and sparks. The foundry term for the sparks are uh, yellow jackets because when they hit your skin, it kind of steals feels like a yellow <laughs> jacket but uh it's probably the coolest place i've ever worked and, and particularly with the foundry because you have all these really talented and uh, and dedicated passionate people and um we just like pumping iron <laughs> <laughs> well we're we're into it we want to come to south pittsburgh and see the foundry and we definitely want to come to the cornbread festival you you will have a you will have a hoot uh uh and the people uh, the people in the festival are so 
uh, I mean, there are people that come in from all over. There a couple years ago, there was a guy in the in the factory store, and we had a TV crew from California. And they said, "Well, you know, why are you here?" And he said, "And he, this couple was from Missouri." You know, I told a little woman all I wanted for Christmas was a trip to the lodge at the Cornbread Festival. <laughs> they had two shopping carts full, but uh, yeah, it, there's a Baptist uh, African American um, Baptist preacher from Atlanta. Anytime. He's going to have a wedding in his church or somebody gets rededicated or any number. He'll come up to our store and buy products and take them down there, and he gives them to them. Um, there's a little town outside of Knoxville. A lady does that. for. It used to be just her church. Now it's everybody in the town. Anybody that gets engaged, she gives them some cast iron products from us. So what's better than that? There's nothing better. Everyone needs one. So, yes. yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of that <laughs> tradition. Um, well, Mark, thanks so much for sitting Thank down with so us much and for talking me. about cast iron. And, and these are for y'all. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. You're too good to us. Well, y'all are part of our family, so that's <laughs> this is this is an early Christmas present. Thank you so <laughs> much. We will put them to good use. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks again. I'm Kat Johnson for Heritage Radio Network. Um, thanks once again to Charlotte's Got a Lot and the Julia Child Foundation for making our coverage of the Bread Symposium possible. 